Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ask Andrew. This episode is the third part of the sequence on catechizing, on the place of catechizing. And in the last episode, I threatened or promised, depending how you look at it, to talk about the four hows of memorizing. And I said that there are four, let's call them factors of things we need to do or that help us determine what to do when we memorize. Those four factors I mentioned were that it depends on the kind of thing that you're memorizing. I suggested that there are some general principles and practices of memory. Then I said that you need to do brief recitations in each session. And I said that you need to involve the whole child. Now, of course, you could take those last two and say they come under the second, the principles and practices. Um, But what I would like to do in this session is I want to talk about the second part first. Okay, so in other words, I want to talk first about the universal principles. Okay, I said it depends on the kind of thing, but there are universal principles that apply to memorizing. And so let's talk about those. And I have two of them. I don't want to go so far as to call these the Ten Commandments of, uh, of memory, but there's ten principles or practices that I want to identify and and use them to think about memorizing. So, you know, you're going to get these and you're going to go, oh, come on. What I want you to do is, is write them down or remember them, whatever works for you. And over time, think about them. And from time to time, focus on one of them as you're either memorizing things yourself or working with your kids. Um, it is worth pointing out that catechism does involve memory work. And the implication or the, or the assumption or the belief behind it, probably I'd say the reality behind it, is that words are seeds, ideas gets planted into the mind. And if the soil of the mind lets them grow, they do grow, no matter how they get there. Okay, so it depends on the kind of thing, but there's universal principles. Let's talk about those 10 universal principles, or at least practices. And the first one is only, huh, this is funny, I, I think this is true. Okay, I think what I'm about to say is true, but you'll have to mean these words the same way I mean them in order to agree with me. And that is that I think there's three kinds of memory or memory act. There's memorizing, there's remembering, and there's recalling. And I'm going to suggest to you that in a, in a certain, certain really restricted way, those three acts apply to three different objects. They are verbs that act on three different objects. You memorize words. You remember things and people. And you recall events, uh, including, though, events in the mind, therefore thoughts, and even words. But I don't think you recall things and people in the strict sense that I'm talking about. 
memorize, you memorize words, you remember things in people, and you recall events, okay? Now, if you're not comfortable with that, especially the third one, set it aside for now, but I'm going to use those categories in a, in a practical way as I go forward. Okay, the second principle or whatever we want to call it, universal practice, is that number two, attention sustained is always the key to memory. Or if you like, the key to memory is always sustained attention. You need to attend and you need to keep attending. If you can get a student to do those two things, you will help your student, your child, memorize, remember, and even recall. I would, I would point out here just briefly that tension produces attention and you can do what you like with that. Number three, I want to talk about the FID factor, which I mentioned last time. Um, the FID factor implies repetition, which is going to be the fourth one. But for now, let's look at the FID factor. You remember, perhaps, haha, remember, that I mentioned last time frequency, intensity, and duration. That's FID, F-I-D. Frequency, intensity, and duration. Frequency means that you should frequently repeat what you're trying to remember, especially if you're trying to memorize it. You should vary the intensity. It could be volumetric, which is another way of saying you can get louder or softer, and maybe we could call it the dynamic intensity. It could go faster and slower. Um, it could be more intense, less intense. It could be heavier and lighter if you're doing with physical objects. But you should vary the intensity. And third, duration should be stretched out. The, the duration of memory work can get longer each time you come back to the same thing you're trying to repeat. And the space between repetitions should get longer. I'm going to come back to that one. Number four. You cannot remember, recall, or memorize without repetition. And repetition in context is especially important to remember. In other words, repeat the same things, but vary the context in which you're repeating them. So let's say you want to memorize a line from Shakespeare. If one day you memorize that line from Shakespeare on a stage, and the next day you memorize it in your back lawn, or repeat it rather in your back lawn, backyard, those two different contexts help you to remember, but also to capture some of the meaning of it. And the more contexts, as long as each context is secure, the deeper you go into understanding what you're memorizing. But repetition in context, first, I would suggest keeping it in the same context. And then when it becomes overly associated with that context, move it to another one, and that'll extend it into your longer term memory. Number five, association creates bonds. Association creates bonds. This, you can call this linking if you want. That's a common term among memory people. When you can associate two things with each other or when you can associate three things with each other or four or five, that builds a network and it strengthens the, the memory itself. Talked about this last time in the idea of when you come into a room, you want to leave if you don't know anybody there and so it is with a fact. A fact is looking for something to associate with. Number six, simplification, or you might say order, is incredibly important with memory, especially if you want to be able to retrieve your memories to go back to it. Order. Um, for example, 
we talked earlier about the fit factor. But what did I do? I took three words, three abstract words, frequency, intensity, duration, three nominalizations, I think. And I gave them each the first letter, F-I-D. What does that do? It simplifies. It's much easier to remember fit factor than it is to remember frequency, intensity, and duration. We do this all the time because it's a natural memory technique, but simplification is the, the key behind it. Now, number seven, the universal practice or principle that I want to recommend at number seven is narration. And this is the Charlotte Mason idea. And I, I just mean here, tell things back. You want to remember a story? Tell it. You want to remember a joke? Good comedians, if they want to remember you, any comedian, anybody who wants to remember a joke is going to go around telling it to everybody. That's why kids, they become bad comedians because they tell the joke to everybody they see, and then the parents give them a hard time for repeating it all the time. Look, they're practicing. They're playing Charlotte Mason games with it. Same with stories. Uh, same with same with even a math lesson. Narrate things back in your own expression, and that will help you to remember the thing or the idea, or the person behind the words that are being memorized. Number eight, group work. So, so helpful. Um, that could be something like a group chanting together, a group singing together, a group reciting together. If you can get groups, because then they can lean on each other. And, and there's not as much pressure to remember every single word and every single sound. And that's great. Now, eventually, you want to break out from the group and be able to function independently partly so you can come back into the group with a more complex recollection. But group work is so important. And then number nine is the principle of review. Under duration, I said that the space between the repetitions should get larger and larger. I call that the principle of elasticity, but that, that's a subordinate notion to review. You should keep reviewing. Um, when you're first trying to remember something or memorize something, you should repeat it a lot. And then you should... Make it an hour apart, two hours apart, six hours apart, a day apart, a week apart, a month apart. Get it into that long-term memory. And if it starts to get a little fragile, then, you know, repeat it. Go back to the beginning if you need to. But extend the review over time. And number 10, something that flows through all memory work, and it's associated deeply with, with attentiveness, and that is vividness. Vividness. What you want to remember Make it vivid. That could mean, and it relates to intensity too there, you maybe see, because vivid, that comes from the Latin viva, which means living, right? Vivid means basically living. Make it leap off the page. Make it personified. Make it something um, easily perceivable, imaginable, things like that. For this, a lot of people take, for example, numbers, give them letters, and then make words out of the letters to remember a number. Sounds like a lot of work, but it's not once it's in place. For example, some people, um, there's a system where the number nine is always a P or a B. So if you want to remember the number 91, T is a T or a D. So pot is the number 91. And if you remember that for the rest of your life, you just, every time you see the number 91, you have picture a pot and you can remember things accordingly. Okay. So those are the 10 laws of memory or the 10 principles universal for the most part. There are three kinds of memory. Attention sustained is always the key to memory. The fit factor is very helpful. We cannot do without repetition. We need to associate if we want to create bonds. Simplification, which expresses itself in order, is important. Narration is extremely helpful. Group work is a great blessing. 
Review and elasticity make it stay, and vividness makes it start. Now, I also talked in the last session about kinds of memory. And here I have to go very quickly because I cannot abuse your time. But there's some, there's some really key points here, some key actionables that I want to get at. And there are basically, there are three kinds of thing, four kinds of thing that you memorize. You, there are kinds that like subjects, of course, history, literature, Bible, all those sorts of things, math, Latin, things like that you need to memorize. But I'm thinking at a higher level, things that flow through the subjects. You have to sometimes remember concepts. Sometimes you have to remember facts. Sometimes you have to remember skills and sometimes forms and patterns. Now, we humans have this gift from God that we use in order to better remember and think about concepts, facts, skills, and patterns. And what we call that gift is language. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change the word because I want to emphasize it differently from language to, we could say naming, but I'm going to use the word conventions. And the reason I'm using the word convention, well, what I mean by convention is in order to remember concepts, facts, skills, and forms, we need to come up with signs. We need to come up with pictures and images, uh, signifiers, symbols that we can use to think and remember things. And we come up with them. I'm not going to go so far as to say they're totally arbitrary, but to some extent, they sure seem to be. And it's hard to get back at whatever it is that's underlying most of these. A word is a convention in this sense. It is fitting. That's what convenient means in, from the Latin. It, it is fitting. But also, it's fitting partly because we agree on it. And so, it's a convention in the sense that it's not an actual thing it's what we agree on. Now, that might seem pointless in, the, in regard to memory, but what I'm getting at is that if we want to access concepts, facts, skills, and forms, we need words, and we need to agree upon them. So, grammar is full of conventions, but without those conventions, we're lost. We can't communicate with each other. Let me give an example from Latin. In Latin, some of you might know that in Latin, there's that, that nouns have declensions. And you might wonder, why on earth do nouns have declensions? Well, the idea here comes from the Greek concept, uh, from a Greek concept about language, which is that if you have a circle and you make a radius from the middle to the top of the circle, you might say if you have the hour, the minute hand pointing up to the 12 and touching it, okay, that represents the pure word. Don't think about a clock, just a circle here. The word itself, okay, the noun, the, the name itself, right? And if you, if you move that hand from what would be 12 o'clock to what would be 3 o'clock, or if you move it uh, 90 degrees down that side of the circle, what's it doing? It's going down and sideways. It is declining. And so what they do is they take the, the, the parts of the noun, the, the cases, nominative, genitive, dative, accusative, ablative, vocative, and sometimes they change the order, but they, they take that and you move down the circle and it says though the vertical line is the nominative, the nomen, the word itself, and then the others are what they call oblique cases because they're a little bit off the 90 degrees, you see. And so, so they come down to three o'clock. Well, what's going on there? They're declining. Now, 
you might be saying, what? So did I. Why would you do that to people? Well, the reason is because it's illustrative. It illustrates something about the noun. It's a way of, actually, believe it or not, it's a way of simplifying it. You can apply declension to every single Latin noun. That's pretty amazing. So it's inconvenient to have to learn it. There's a principle. Conventions are hard to learn. Things, we experience them. They become part of our our life, but conventions are harder. Words are harder. And that's an important thing when it comes to the memory. If you want to have a good, solid memory, you're going to have to recognize that conventions are harder to memorize than experiences. But you have to remember the, the conventions so that you can get along with people and communicate with them. The convention simplifies. Now, when we name a thing, or a concept, or even an action, we give it an agreed-upon sound, an agreed-upon symbol, so that we can, A, talk about it, think about it, and B, remember it. If I can remember the name, I can call that thing, just like if I can remember my dog's name, I can tell it to go away. Of course, it thinks I'm calling it to come when I say its name, but anyway... Whoever would do that, I can't imagine. Sometimes even patterns are made up in order to help us understand things. Maybe the declension of a noun is one of those, and sometimes patterns are real. Now, okay, why all this talk? Because when you're studying history, for example, or when you're studying literature, when you're learning how to read, you know what you're doing? In a certain sense, you're not learning about reality. You're learning about language so you can think about reality and thereby learn about it. Do you see what I'm getting at there? This is why it's so important that you remember that you memorize the conventions, the names for things. Example in history. You're going to have a period in history called the Renaissance. What is that? Is there really such a thing? C.S. Lewis argued that maybe there's not as big a one as we like to think. It was only named, as I understand it, by Jacob Burkhart, Burkhart, a 19th century German philosopher, German historian, rather. Okay, but we still call it the Renaissance. Why? Because we can now think about that whole period. And the more we look at it, the more meaningful the word becomes to us, to the point where we might start to say, hey, maybe that's not even the best name. Okay, fine. But until we know the name, and until we know what animal it's being applied to, it's hard for us to know whether it's the appropriate name. But periods, eras in history, are basically names, conventions, that we give to periods in time to make it manageable. Now, sometimes they're real things in a certain sense, like Greek history actually applies to a place, but you know, you start thinking too hard, you might get lost on that. Those names for periods in history are extremely worth memorizing. So how do you do it? Well, you repeat it, right? You apply those 10 laws. I made up a chant when I taught Greek history. I made up a chant when I taught Roman history to third graders, and we would just chant them. They take about, I don't know, a minute. Um, I even made up a chant for the constellations in the sky. So it applies to, it applies to, um, to science too. If there's a list of names... Take those 10 commandments of memory and apply them to that list and make the kids remember them. 
And I can't emphasize enough, the reason I'm talking about names and conventions is because they enable us to understand each other and the world we live in, because that's why we came up with these names and conventions. Okay? So, also, reference points in history, names, dates, and places, um, vocabulary, concepts, which are embodied in events, acts, and discussions. And discussions means speeches. And speeches means if they've been preserved, something important was said. They had an impact. And, and speeches should be memorized for that reason. And there's skills in history, like especially, I mean, mainly the historical skill that kids learn is reading. Now, let's talk about reading very, 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 very briefly. Reading is, has, is a set of skills. It is the skill. Fundamentally, it's one skill. Reading is the skill of interpreting verbal signs. Okay, in other words, it's decoding, but it's decoding at multiple levels. There's decoding letters, which come in sounds. There's decoding words, which name things. Sorry, letters represent sounds. Words represent things. Sentences represent thoughts or ideas. Paragraphs and chapters represent extended reasoning. And so there's, there's the simple decoding of that letter makes this sound. Okay, they have to learn that, and it's conventional. They have to work hard to learn that, which is one reason they aren't learning it anymore is because people don't want kids to have to work hard, especially on conventions. Um, so, so they have to work hard to learn letters, words, sentences, and paragraphs, but apply those 10 laws. Then there's the skill of interpreting sequences of thought that are arranged in deliberative order. Okay, that's an advanced form of decoding. It's an advanced form of interpreting. And then there's finding ideas which come in and, and patterns, right? So the, the basic idea of reading is expressed in a sentence, but that can be broken down into the word and the letter. And then get this now, there are rules that are applied to sentences, words, letters, paragraphs, and so on. And where do those rules come from? Arbitrary agreement? Now they're rooted in nature, but we had to they're real. There's real principles of thought and reality there, but we came up with ways to represent them symbolically so we could think and talk to each other. In case you can't tell, that blows my mind. Math, intellectual skills, intellectual skills. They need to, but the, what I mean by that is their skills of understanding rooted in facts. And math is so hard because the facts are so deep already when you're four years old. The vivid and clear facts that two plus two equals four is almost incomprehensible as an idea. But it's memorable as a fact. So there's a place for mathematical concepts, but uh, be careful. Sometimes we want our kids to become philosophers in first grade, and they're not going to do it. The first, they need simply to memorize well, they need to see that two plus two is four. Then they need to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it because eventually they're going to start adding up things that they can't see. They're going to start multiplying things that they can't see, like 14,612 times 11,942. They will never, ever, ever see that, but they will be able to think it if they memorize the math facts. There are ideas like the equation, like what a number is. Easier what a shape is. Okay. Now, you could have them memorize the definition of a shape, which is to say, 
they're going to, you could have them memorize the word square and then the words that we use to describe a square, which will be something like um, four parallel lines with equal angles and equal length. Okay, it could be that. Now, you could have them memorize that, but do they know it? No, but it makes it easier to understand it when you talk about it. So I don't have a strong opinion about whether they should be given a definition before or after. But now, the third and the fourth part, the third and the fourth prince, um, uh, practical, what am I talking about? Practical hows, yeah, are, are brief, but I'm out of time. So I'm going to take a break. I'll give you a week to process all this nonsense. And then in a week, come back and listen and we'll talk briefly about the brief recitation and the importance of the whole child being encouraged to remember. So sorry I went over time a little bit again, but thank you for listening. And may the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.